0: Good Sunday morning! This is the Arts Section, I'm your host Gary Zydek, welcome to WDCB's Arts & Culture Magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the arts section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program, I'll catch up with author and screenwriter Rachel Kohler-Croft. The Chicago native is making a name for herself in Hollywood as her new novel is being turned into a TV series. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will be reviewing a revival of The Three-Penny Opera. Later in the show, WDCB's own Leslie Karras interviews acclaimed drummer Terry Lynn Carrington. And later, I'll check in with local film critic Nick Allen to talk about the underappreciated art of stunts and filmmaking. That's all coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning.
1: I'm a Classic, bougie, right.
0: Just over 10 years ago, author Rachel kohler Croft was working in sales in Chicago. These days, the Chicago native spends her days writing novels and screenplays. She's already had one of her scripts made into a film, and her debut novel is getting rave reviews. The new book titled Stone Cold Fox is a fun thriller tailor-made for our current times. Think the talented Mr. Ripley mixed with a dash of Gone Girl and American Psycho, but set in the 2020s. The story revolves around a young woman named B, who has grand plans to marry into one of America's wealthiest families. After surviving a traumatic upbringing, B is more interested in security than love. Of course, the blue bloods of this world won't allow just anyone to join their club. In order to get her happy ending, B has to win over her fiance's ultra wealthy family, defeat a jealous rival, and escape a shady past. I recently caught up with Croft to talk about Stone Cold Fox while she was in Chicago for a book signing. The visit was also a homecoming for the celebrated author. She grew up in the southwest suburbs before her family moved to the northwest side of Chicago. Writing was always a passion for Croft, though her journey to a published author and credited screenwriter took some unique twists and turns.
2: I always wanted to be an author, a writer, screenwriter, things of that nature, but I think, you know, I came from a pretty traditional family and even though they were always very encouraging, I wasn't exactly 100% sure how to go about it, but after college, I was going to move back to England because I did my year abroad there and met somebody. And we were very young. And when we broke up, I said, okay, well, I'm moving to California instead. And I packed up my Honda Accord and drove out to LA. And my first job there was actually at a very popular celebrity gossip blog and turned out not to be my calling. (laughs) I did that for about a year and a half. And I think I conflated the job with Los Angeles in general, and I actually moved back to Chicago for a couple of years. But it was a very fortuitous detour, and I also got into sales, which ended up also being a very fortuitous detour because I don't think people tell screenwriters. Uh, or aspiring screenwriters, that 80% of that job is sales. (laughs) So I went over to a startup company where I sold luxury floral arrangements to hotels and residential buildings and all sorts of places around the city um, for their flowers, and I became one of the top salespeople in the company, and in 2013, they moved me out to Los Angeles. So I kind of got my second chance in California and popped around a couple other sales jobs here and there, but I just was meeting a lot of people that were working as writers, directors, assisting those people all sorts of things including my ex-boyfriend who is going to be working on becoming a screenwriter and when we had a really gnarly breakup I decided well if he can do it I certainly can Mm -hmm. and so I sat down to write my first script and I sold it a few months later to a production company on the Sony lot and I've been working pretty steadily as a screenwriter ever since.
0: If you hadn't gone to LA and you'd stayed in Chicago do you think you would have eventually gone down that route
2: it's really hard to say You know, I think Chicago is a very creative town as well. It's quite possible I would have went the novel route before the screenwriting route. I think just when you're in Los Angeles, you're surrounded by the industry and it's very exciting and um, it seemed inaccessible, but also I think I could figure out my way in and I certainly did, but um, I know it's impossible to say what would have happened had I stayed in Chicago. It was just one of those, I guess you could say that about any turning point in your life.
0: (laughs) You brought up screenwriting. So I know you've probably, you've worked on like other scripts, but the film that I I know you from is this movie that came out, was it last year or two years ago, Torn Hearts, which is maybe more of a thriller with country music influences. Uh, We can talk about that, but I'm just curious, do you have a different mindset when you're writing a screenplay versus sitting down to write like a novel?
2: Yes. So for screenplays... They're they're both challenging in different ways, but with a screenplay, you just don't have as much real estate on the page. So you have about 90 to 120 pages to tell your story. There's a lot of white space on those pages, character names, stage directions. So you really have to get to the point and kind of make it snappy and make sure you're hitting all these emotional beats. Now, I will say for me personally, I think being a screenwriter first made me a better novelist because I approach my novels in kind of a cinematic way. But what I really liked about writing novels that I can't do with screenplays I mean, the whole book is in B's mind, for example. I really get to focus on character interiority, which in a script you kind of can't do. Um, you can get away with a little voiceover here and there, but generally you have to show everything that's going on in different ways. And I liked being able to spend time in her head the whole time. And then also I can write about what the room looks like, what clothes they're wearing. Like you get to be the director, the costume designer, the sound designer, and everything, and the book is the finished product with your name on it, and it's your book. And that's not to say, I mean, there's a team that puts it together, and it it takes a village and all that, but the author's name is on it, and they're driving the creative. And with a screenplay, screenplay isn't the finished product. It's a finished screenplay, but like most people aren't going to sit down to read it, right? It's kind of like the the map to making the final product, which is the movie, and there's a ton of people involved in making a movie, so you're just kind of one part of it. Even though you are originating the story, it ultimately becomes, it belongs to a lot of people by the time the film is out in the world. And then sometimes you write a screenplay, you sell it, you can make a whole living as a screenwriter, and still not get produced because it just is a long journey. It's a long path to production and barring something really bizarre happening to you, if you get a book deal, your book will be published and a physical product out in the world. So that was very exciting for me.
0: Stone Cold Fox will be transitioning to screen at some point, hopefully. We can talk about that later. So yeah, let's talk about the book, Starting Points. Was there a moment of lightning strikes inspiration where you had this idea for a story? Or was it kind of like a gradual thing?
2: Um, a little bit of both. I mean, Bee's voice was kind of the lightning strike moment. I kind of started playing around with her voice. And I want to preface this by saying it's like her ambition and sense of humor when I say the next thing I'm going to say. But she kind of comes from three of my best girlfriends and myself and how we talked to each other. Other and our sense of humor and things like that. And then I just kind of really dialed it up for B. I didn't want to make her caricature, but I wanted to make her a villain, but in the way that I respond to villains. And what I mean by that is they're rarely a good villain, is rarely black and white. They have a lot of motivation and they make very active choices. And that was something for me as a thriller reader that I thought as a thriller writer I could kind of bring something a little bit different to the table and that not only was she three-dimensional, but she was also really funny. Because I find a lot of thrillers can stay very serious <laughs> and I enjoy those, but almost everything I write, especially if you saw Torn Hearts, even though it's scary or creepy, still has you know a, a healthy splash of humor. So like really leaning into that character um, was very helpful for my first draft. And it sort of read as just kind of like, B's story, but um, when I went in to do the second draft, I kind of dug in a lot deeper into her characterization and then the world at large where I was putting her in, which is the world of the 1%, coupled with a few strategic flashbacks so people that may not like B, because some people don't like her, um, would still understand her. And so that was important to me as well. But yeah, my agent, um, when I when she read the first draft and responded and wanted to work with me, she said something to the effect of, "You do realize you wrote a novel about a complicated mother-daughter relationship?" And I was like, "Oh yeah, I guess I did," because the mother character in the first draft was not um, as big of an influence as she is in the in the final iteration. So. Going back in with her at the center of a lot of Bee's motivation, I think, just made the story stronger, made her characterization stronger, and that became more of a process. But as far as like the publishing timeline, I think it was all told. I started the first draft kind of lackadaisically because I was working on my paid screenwriting stuff and just writing this in my free time. That was, took about a year, and then I worked on it with my agent for about another year. We went out with it, multiple editors were interested, which was very exciting, so it went to auction, and I ended up with a two-book deal from Berkeley, which is an imprint of Penguin Random House, and I'm very happy there.
0: <laughs> if you're just tuning in, this is the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking with author Rachel Kohler-Croft about her new novel, Stone Cold Fox. The book follows a young woman named Bea who is unapologetically ambitious, and a little dangerous.
2: I would say that B is a very ambitious and beautiful young woman who is the semi-reformed daughter of a con artist. So she was raised by someone with, let's say, loose morals. And so um, when she grows up and kind of escapes her mother's clutches, she kind of, in a much more heightened way, it's this, you know, nature versus nurture comment. So one of the things she's always thinking about is like, is this something my mother would do? And if so, she kind of tries to run the other way. But all this to say, she didn't have a lot of safety and security growing up. And so she kind of sees a path to her future where she can actually get some peace and feel safe and secure by marrying into the 1%. So when she happens upon Colin Case, who is from the type of family like Johnson & Johnson kids or Kennedy's, things of that nature, you know, East Coast, old money, blue-blooded family, she decides, oh, maybe I will infiltrate there. And because she is such a beautiful woman, she's not super concerned with getting the ring from him, but she knows just based on where he comes from, she might be facing some opposition from his family and inner circle, namely his childhood best friend and who has an unrequited crush on him, Gail Wallace Lester, who will stop at nothing to take B down.
0: <laughs> it's interesting because she desperately wants to be part of the Case family for the reasons you kind of described. There's a lot of financial security, but at the same time, she seems to detest them.
2: Yes, I thought that would be really interesting for a main character, someone that's both enticed and repulsed by ultimate wealth, because I think that is kind of a relatable emotion for a lot of people. We're all very fascinated by the 1%, and wow, a lot of that stuff looks really nice, but it's also sort of stomach-turning as well. So there's something um, I really liked exploring through Bee's eyes, just kind of the criticism she has while also kind of having this mentality of, well, If you can't beat them, join them, because she does acknowledge that, well, it's better than the alternative, and it is what it is. And I want to feel like I don't have to worry about those things anymore. So in a lot of ways, I don't think B is your average gold digger trope. Um, She's not really a bimbo. She is very smart, very funny, very accomplished in her own right. She has a career. She always has a plan B, C, and D, always looking over her shoulder. And so she's just kind of always on, and I think she sees this potential marriage as a way to finally feel at peace and relaxed and not like her mother and the world at large are going to be up to get her anymore.
0: Like you mentioned, a lot of us have this interest at the 1%, uh, probably an unhealthy interest, but <laughs> my wife and I watched the uh, Harry and Meghan. There's just something about learning about, you know, behind the scenes of something. We don't, we don't know anything about what those lives are like. So for the fictional case family, Mm -hmm. is that something you do research on? Or is it kind of like you embellishing what you think it might be like? Um,
2: Yes and no. I mean, so I live in Los Angeles, which the wealth there has a very different vibe, right? It's not a lot of old money. It's a lot of show, <laughs> showy and not, you know, as uh, discreet, I would suppose. Um, and I don't want to say this family was like a direct example, um, but I had an ex-boyfriend that kind of came from a fancy family and his mother was not very nice to me. So that was kind of a seed of those characters ultimately went and Entirely different directions. This is distinctly not auto fiction. It is a novel. Um, but that was something that I certainly considered. And then I don't know, I've like subscribed to Town and Country for many years. I love the show Succession. I feel like there are just um, things we know from the larger culture that I, you know, kind of took into consideration and thought about. But it was a combination of that type of research and then also just people I've come across in my career and kind of using them as a, a springboard to explore some of these themes.
0: And your novels definitely its own things but yeah a couple of things that sprung to mind as I'm reading was Succession because the interplay between siblings of like this ultra wealthy family they kind of have their own language mm-hmm. when dealing with each other and then also a little bit the talented Mr. Ripley and like the issues he he kind of like masters the replication of Of Dickie, but uh, it's like not being accepted into their world. B is really trying to ingratiate herself.
2: Yes, and she's a very observant character and has been observant her entire life. You even see that in the flashbacks, and she's a really good mimic in a lot of ways. She knows, I mean, even when she's coming up with her story, knowing where she wants to head with it, you know, she's like, well, I can't say I went to Harvard or one of these schools because that network runs really deep and she's just always kind of thinking ahead um, and responding in the moment and feeling really prepared. And that's like one of the things I really love about this character is because she just has so much agency and puts her foot on the gas and takes big swings and is a woman kind of in control of her destiny in a lot of ways. And that's not to say she doesn't face conflict, but um, she's not the type of character that isn't remembering things or feels like, oh, she's a mess and all these things are happening to her. Like she's very much a a type A character that's gonna get her head in the game. And so when she meets someone like Gail, You know, initially I think they both underestimate each other, but it's kind of exciting to her in a way that reminds her of her mother, which is both, you know, it obviously repels her, but there's something about that um, cat and mouse game with Gail at the start that she thinks it's going to be fun. And then she soon realizes um, she may have underestimated this woman and things can get dangerous really fast.
0: (laughs) So with Stone Cold Fox, you have this idea around this character B, and then you start writing. Do you know how it's going to end right away, or does that come...
3: You know...
2: I'm someone that has loose outlines and I use that both for screenwriting and for novel writing because so much of my process I've just realized now over the years of we're doing it so much is that a lot of stuff will happen to me as I'm writing. Like things I don't think about certain stuff when I'm outlining the same way I must think about stuff when I'm actually in flow and writing. So a good example was Stone Cold Fox is like the character of Ren Daly was not in my outline. She just kind of appeared one day and I was like, Oh, she's funny, she can stay and be can kind of use her in her in her game. So I want to make sure I leave myself room for exploration and moments that I didn't anticipate. However, I do have a general idea of my beginning, my middle, and where I want it to land. And I would say I had a couple alternate endings for the book, but they were all kind of going in the similar direction. So I kind of made the judgment call by the time I got there. And the ending wasn't like a total surprise to me. So I do like to plot out some. I'm kind of like half planner, half let's see what happens. (laughs)
0: Okay. And we won't get into into spoilers, but the way it ended it, I could see there being a continuation.
2: Yes, I always, I mean, similar to B, I subscribe to. Always leave them wanting more. (laughs) So um, I do think it is a slightly ambiguous ending, which some people don't respond to. But I always like an ambiguous ending when I'm reading and seeing a movie, especially when I'm talking about it with somebody, because I think it just kind of gives you a little something to chew on. Like, what do you think that was about?
0: I referenced it earlier. I think the announcement came out that uh, it's Universal. They're, They're developing Stone Cold Fox to be a a TV series so is it early stages now?
2: It is the early stages but the deal has officially closed and we're all very excited so the next phase is we'll be going out to actresses to make some attachments and then hopefully go to networks and then see see who wants to bite Um, but yeah it's, it's early days and we're figuring out the pitch and Um, I'm really, really excited because I'd be lying to you if I said this wasn't part of my grand plan when I sat down to write the book. Um, I've always wanted to write a book, of course. And first and foremost, I wanted to write a great book. But as a screenwriter, I was getting very frustrated with having to pitch on other people's IP because that is sort of how the industry is right now. And so I would get, you know, requests to come in and pitch on all these different books and They're great and they're wonderful, but it's like, you know, I have my own ideas as well. So one of my representatives who no longer represents me a few years ago said something kind of snarky, like, well, Rachel, if you want all the creative control, you're just going to have to sit down and write your own book and I was like well that's exactly what I'm gonna do Um, so I'm very excited that um, we landed where we did and Universal's great and producer Julie Pleck is amazing and I'm very optimistic but it is early days so everyone everyone keep their fingers crossed for me
0: (laughs) because the direction this is heading you maybe you wouldn't feel comfortable but dream casting for some of the characters (laughs) any ideas
2: I mean I have a lot of ideas in that regard but I can share like who I pictured while I was writing I mean B especially I just picture her as like the most beautiful woman on the planet and I really did picture like Margot Robbie a lot specifically the first scene when she shows up in the Wolf of Wall Street in that blue dress and every guy in the place has his jaw on the floor and she just commands the room like she's definitely someone I thought a lot about um, for B specifically and then similarly for Mother you know I thought a lot about you know Michelle Pfeiffer Uma Thurman since I just watched the Pam Anderson documentary and she kind of having a renaissance I was like that's interesting but also just kind of you know woman of a certain age who's also a blonde bombshell type and Gail's a little more amorphous in my head because she's kind of a mishmash of like the way some people have made she's not based on anybody it's more just like how people in that world sometimes would make you feel for example so but like a silly example even though this isn't who it would be but I thought a lot of the movie legally blonde for example and just kind of the Alwoods and the Vivian Kensington of it all were kind of I I used to pitch this as like legally blonde meets American psycho okay,
0: <laughs> okay yeah, I get that for sure for some reason this is because i came of age in the 90s mm-hmm. I was thinking of uh, young Ally Larder like varsity blues yeah. first thing that popped in my head then the more I read I was like thinking Margot Robbie.
2: But Ali Larter's in the same yeah. same vicinity, especially in that movie. Just kind of like a, she walks in the room, and you can tell she's up to something.
0: Yeah. <laughs> now the the book is out, and people are, are reading it you're here in Chicago for a book signing event and also visiting home what's it what's it been like now that you can engage with people or are reading what you spent so much time on
2: oh it's so rewarding because I feel like people are really responding to it and I'm very happy to hear that a lot of people a lot of people are admitting to really liking B despite her nefarious intent and that's really what I wanted to accomplish so I feel like What I've been hearing is that people have really connected with the characters, even if they think they're monsters, and that's really what I wanted to create, are like three dimensional characters that feel real, and when you finish the book, in a few months if someone asks you, you're not going to forget about B. and so I feel like that's been kind of the theme. Like People are like, oh, she's iconic, I'm going to remember her forever, and that's so exciting. and it's just cool to see people tag me on Bookstagram or send me an email that they like the book and it's on Amazon now so you watch your rankings. It's just like a really cool experience and I'm having fun and like keeping perspective because not everyone is going to like the book and that's fine too because I don't know, I think if you write something that everyone universally likes I mean how good can it be? Like how strong is your point of view? So, but generally I feel like the feedback has been super positive and I love meeting readers in person this tour has been so much fun
0: Obviously you're enjoying the, the moment now but what's next?
2: I'm working on my second novel so I actually finished, finished a first draft of that at the end of last year feel like we skipped Christmas in my house I was kind of a grinch because I was like my poor husband I'm like it comes around every year I just really wanted to have that checked off the list so I could enjoy this time with the first book coming out Um, it's not I'm not working on a sequel to Stone Cold Fox yet I hope to in the future this is a different story and I can't share too much but I will say music plays a heavy influence in the story not country music like Torn Hearts but a different genre and it might even be a little bit spooky so it will still sound like a Rachel Kohler-Croft story in that it will be funny with wild women at the center and lots of thrills, but it's kind of in a different space than what um, I think Stone Cold Fox has always considered a domestic suspense. And I would not call my next novel in the same genre specifically, but it is thrilling and fun. And I really like in all of my work to, I take, I'm just find it a big responsibility in the same way when I'm hosting a party like I want to make sure everyone's having a good time they're laughing they're meeting interesting people maybe thinking about something in a way they haven't thought of before and when they finish they're like oh I can't wait for the next one that was great.
0: <laughs> Rachel thanks so much.
2: Thanks for having me. <laughs>
0: That's author Rachel kohler Croft. Her new book, Stone Cold Fox, is available everywhere books are sold. You can find more information at rachelkohlercroft.com. And And you are listening to the Arts Section... I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me remotely are the Dueling Critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning.
4: Good morning, Good Gary. Good morning, Gary.
0: Theo Ubique is celebrating its 25th anniversary season with a revival of Bertolt Brecht and Kurt Weill's The Three Penny Opera. The play with music premiered in Berlin in the summer of 1928. And if you've ever listened to "Mac the Knife and wondered what those lyrics mean...
1: Make dear. So there's not, not a trace
0: of the song was composed and written for the Three Penny Opera. Jonathan, we'll start with you. How many times have you seen this play?
5: <laughs> I've seen Three Penny Opera, I mean, not, not as many times as I've seen, say, Hamlet or, uh, or Twelfth Night or things like that, but I've seen probably uh, a half dozen times. Uh, over my life, including one performance in Berlin, in German, uh, you know, the city where it had its, its world premiere in 1928. And as you noted, it's, it's the best-known song from it is Mack the Knife, and the continuing popularity of Mack the Knife, uh, it, you know, it's, it's kind of, uh, considering that, it's astonishing to realize that the Three Penny Opera is almost 100 years old, and its root source, the Beggar's Opera, is nearly 300 years old. That dates from 1728. And the messages of both of them, about urban underclass, about social injustice and government corruption, the messages remain, remain as pertinent as ever, especially the famous line from the Three Penny Opera, that founding a bank is more criminal than robbing one. <laughs> that seems to be particularly pertinent to the uh, the news, banking news, of the last several weeks or so. Freepenny also manages to satirize romance and grand opera, which really confirms the genius of its creators, uh, Bertolt Brecht and Kurt Weill. Now, the story concerns the thieves and whores and professional beggars of 1838 London, during Queen Victoria's coronation. Now, it's a bit tricky to understand you know, the setting because the dialogue really doesn't provide clear exposition. And the cabaret-style staging offers a really very few visual clues in the form of the elaborate scenery or costumes. Uh, the cabaret style means that the players move and perform among uh, the tables and chairs where the audience is sitting, and the patrons enjoy drinks. Uh, there's even a, a pre-show meal available if you want it. <laughs> Originally, the Theo Ubiquet Theater, and now they just want to go with Theo, <laughs> Theo Theater Company. They've been staging shows this way, in and, in and around and among the audience for 25 years. Yeah. You know, it's funny, I, uh, and I don't think it's just because there is a shared actor between
4: these two productions, but what I was reminded of while seeing this, uh, this production of Three Penny Opera was the production we saw just earlier last fall of Kokandi production Sweeney Todd, which is similarly, you know, the dark underbelly, the hypocrisies. And I think the similarity is that much like this production of Three Penny, which, as you rightly say, Jonathan, kind of uses every corner of of uh, Theo's uh, Howard Street Theater venue on the Evanston side of Howard Street. The Kokandi production, Sweeney Todd, also kind of, although it had a rotating stage in the center, you know, kind of made us feel like we were right in the middle of this. So, in a way, I think what's interesting about those stagings and very appropriate is that we are very much implicated. We are not, you know, watching this from a distance. All this, you know, the, the hypocrisy, the, uh, the, the self-delusions, the self-dealing, the double-dealing, all of that, we are very clearly meant to be seeing ourselves in a mirror, that we are, in fact, a part of this. And to that end, I think Fred Anzellino's staging works very well. And I would also say there are some really fine voices in this production, not least of which is the very charismatic Carl Herzog, who plays McKeith, or, or the Mac of, of the song title. Uh, what, what did you think about the performances overall, Jonathan? I was rather you know, taken by several of them. Um, yeah, and I'm, it's been a I'm, while since I've seen this show, so it was nice yeah. to be reminded of the power of some of these songs.
5: Right. Well, let me comment in, a, in, in, a, in just a moment. But let's remind people, you know, there are a lot of folks out there who have never seen Three Penny Opera. It's not performed all that much. Uh, so let's tell them that the story centers on McKeith, Sure. Uh, Mac the Knife of the Song, and his lovers, Polly Peachum and Lucy Brown, both of whom he appears to have married. Now, McKeith is a notorious gangster. Polly's mom and dad are the organizers of London's professional beggars and pickpockets, and Lucy's dad is chief of police. And there's also Mackie's ex-love, Jenny Diver, a prostitute. All of them are equally corrupt, while Polly and Lucy also are insanely jealous of each other <laughs> over McKeith, the result is that McKeith winds up on the gallows. And I'm not going to say any more about that. This new production—that's what you're asking me about—really retains all the show's moral satire and political satire, and musically is quite splendid, especially the women's roles. Uh, the producer and director is Fred Anzavino, who's the founder of the Theo Theater Company. He's judiciously reduced the cast of size, the size of the cast, by several players, but only folks who know the show really well, like me, will notice that. <laughs> you know, I miss, have, I miss having a tiny orchestra with an accordion and a saxophone sure. and, you know, playing Kurt Weil's music which you know sounds simple but is really quite difficult but the solo piano accompaniment by Ryan Brewster is excellent as is his musical direction and the cast all do fine work uh, yeah Carl Herzog plays McKeith with suave grace and a pleasing baritone but I especially enjoyed the throaty contralto of Megan Elk as Mrs. Peacham she's a born scene stealer with her garish makeup and I also like very much the mezzo soprano of Shamaya Moody as Polly Peachum.
4: Yes, and I would also say that Lucy Brown, played by Nace Bo- uh Robotham, who's who's non-binary, uh, is also uh, quite uh, quite a compelling and and you know sort of an emotionally rich moment in a show that Three Penny Opera is not a show that traffics in you know from the heart, heart on the sleeve sorts of moments. <laughs> so that would not be Brecht, but yet. Still, some of it comes through in some of the performances, and I definitely found uh, Robotham's performance to be one of those. Yeah, I
5: thought the cast really does very fine work under uh, Fred Anzabino and under Ryan Brewster's musical direction. I think this is a show, too, that we should, as I, we mentioned,
4: it's sort of staged in every corner. So if you go, I mean, the way that uh, if you've never been to Quay, they have or Theo, as they are now calling themselves, they have little cabaret tables in the middle. I think you pay a little extra for those. In keeping with what they've been doing for a long time, your bartender may turn out to be somebody who is performing in the show in just a few minutes. And then there are you know sort of regular seats around the periphery. And since the action unfolds in several places, you're going to want to keep on your toes as, as an audience member. Because, yes, while you will obviously be directed most or most encouraged to be looking at the people who are singing or speaking in a particular moment, I, for me, part of the joy of this production was sort of looking out at the corner of my eye to see who, what the other players were doing, what the other actors are doing, how they were reacting. You sort of get the sense that there's always plotting going on all around you, <laughs> whether it's to undermine McKeith, whether it's to curry favor with him, whether it's to undermine a rival for McKeith's affections. There's always a very lively and engaged sense of play with all of the ensemble, even if they are not literally in the center stage at that moment.
0: Sounds like two recommendations.
4: Yes, and I think particularly, as Jonathan points out, it doesn't come around all that often.
0: Theo's The Three Penny Opera continues through April 30th. Moving on, Jonathan, you have a a pick this week?
5: Well, I wanted to uh, give a shout-out to the Comedy of Errors at Chicago Shakespeare Theater, uh, playing through April 16th. This is the last production directed by Barbara Gaines, the founder and longtime artistic director of the company. Uh, we assume that she will be back to direct additional shows, but she is stepping down as artistic director, uh, though her successor has not yet been named. Now, Barbara, I've seen many of her productions over the whole history of Chicago Shakespeare Theater since uh, the, you know the middle nineteen eighties. Uh, it's a long time, and I would say she is not noted. For her direction of Shakespeare's comedies, but this comedy bearer, she's choosing to go out as artistic director is with with it, is certainly uh, the most successful and most enjoyable that I have seen. This is a, you know, it's one of Shakespeare's earliest plays, his first big hit. It is one that's based on. Roman comedy that was, uh, you know, old, uh, 1,500 years old when, when Shakespeare read it, you know, mistaken identity. This resol- revolves around two sets of identical twins who end up, uh, they've been separated at birth, and now they are adults, and uh, they sh- they're in the same place at the same time, and everybody mistakes them for the other, causing no end of confusion. And Chicago shakes has added a a a uh, a second literally a second play a premise that uh, it is in a british film studio in the early 1940s uh, during the battle of britain world war 2 and they are filming a production of the comedy of errors and so you meet all the, uh, the, the, the stars and the actors and the producer and the director, all of whom take on roles within Shakespeare's Comedy of Errors as well. And the new scenes, the studio scenes as they call them, were written by Ron West, uh, a longtime uh, member of the Second City Company, both on stage and as a director, and a previous collaborator, which caused the Shakespeare Theater. And they are engaging and funny, and the whole thing really is filled with laugh-out-loud moments. And Barbara Gaines has brought in some of her favorite veteran players, some of who have been doing roles with her for 30 years. And they started out playing leading men, like Kevin mm-hmm. Goodall is one. He started out doing romantic leads, and and uh, you know now he plays one of the uh, one of the comic characters, one of the twins who is the servant to one of the other men. It's all very, very delightful, very engaging, and I do recommend it. This is really easy to take. Shakespeare, it's family-friendly Shakespeare, though it's a bit on the long side with the additional material. It is very much a full-length show with an intermission running two and a half hours or so, Um, but it is a delight to see.
4: I'm quite looking forward to seeing that myself, Jonathan. So you're saying that Barbara Gaines is out there for Tragedy Tomorrow and Comedy Tonight?
5: That's right. Tragedy <laughs>
4: Tomorrow or maybe I, next I, season and Comedy Tonight. Yeah, I agree with you. It is interesting that she's kind of choosing this as her last show in her current role. And, of course, we are very eagerly awaiting uh, news on who will be replacing not just Barbara Gaines, but uh, Chris Henderson, who I believe stepped down around the end of the year as the The executive director. Yeah. The
5: longtime executive director. They
4: were they were very much a a power team for many, many years in transforming Chicago Shakespeare into what it is today.
0: And that production of Comedy of Airs is running at Chicago Shakespeare through April twenty third. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. We'll see you next week. Oh
4: you're 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 welcome.
0: I'm Gary Zydek, and you're tuned into the Arts section. Last month, drummer and NEA Jazz Master Terry Lynn Carrington picked up a Grammy for her latest release, New Standards Volume One. The album and a companion volume of sheet music mark a years-long effort to shed light on female composers whose works have long been left out of the jazz canon. DCB Jazz host Leslie Carris recently spoke with Carrington about the New Standards project.
3: In the summer of 2018, Terry Lynn Carrington was planning the music for a party. She and her colleagues were celebrating the founding of the new Institute of Jazz and Gender Justice at the Berklee College of Music. Carrington wanted students to perform at the gathering, so she gave them an assignment.
1: I asked the students to play some songs written by women composers, and when they looked through the real book, they could not really find any. Uh, whatever edition they had, only had And Ronell's Willow Weep For Me.
3: The real book Carrington refers to is a widely used collection of jazz standards. It was first compiled in the 1970s by two students at Berkeley, so the irony ran deep. Carrington knew of many tunes that had not been included in the real book, so it was time to correct the record.
1: To say the least, there are a plethora of women composers, over the years that um, I felt needed some light to be shined on them.
3: To begin work on the project, Carrington drew from decades of experience as a composer, band leader, record producer, and mentor.
1: Then I started thinking about all the people that I had played with over the years and how they were all composers, any of the women that I played with. You know, they all had original music. And I thought, you know, over the years there's been, I'm sure, even more women that nobody's heard of or that have had uh, you know, some recognition as players that also had music. And I just thought, you know, let's do some kind of compilation focusing on women composers. And I started with people that I had played with and songs that I liked of theirs.
3: Compiling the new collection would become the first initiative of the Institute of Jazz and Gender Justice, which Carrington founded. The book would be called New Standards, and every piece in it would be composed by a woman. About a third would come from women Carrington had either played with or saluted. But she and her corps of volunteers continued the search, and over the course of four years, New Standards ultimately included 101 works spanning more than a century of composition. Once published, the book was distributed by Hal Leonard, the same music publishing giant that also published the real book. For Carrington, pieces by well-known composers such as Mary Lou Williams and Marian McPartland came to mind quickly, since Carrington had already performed them in tribute concerts. Pisces, composed in the 1940s by Mary Lou Williams, was a tune Carrington had played with the late pianist Jerry Allen, a champion of Williams' work who liked Carrington's arrangement of the piece. That's
1: the only song that I actually included an arrangement on. I felt like the arrangement might draw more people to it, to the piece, because the arrangement feels a relatively modern, uh, you know, not not incredibly modern, but, you know, just a little something different that I thought might make some younger, you know, students or younger musicians play it closer, you know, more than if I had just transcribed the original. And Jerry asked to play it after we did it. She kept asking me for it. So I thought, okay, it must be okay.
3: Another tune already in Carrington's repertoire was Time and Time Again by Marion McPartland. The
1: piece that included a phrase in the book was really the one that that spoke to me when I had already gone through her music. So that was a natural fit. Plus it's beautiful.
3: Sometimes though, music had a way of finding Carrington rather than the other way around. Putting together the compilation involved not only selecting music, but also getting permission to include it. It was during that part of the process that Carrington first learned of a composer whose work had been recorded decades earlier by highly regarded musicians, such as Herb Ellis and Hank Jones. Biggest discovery was probably Sarah Cassie.
1: And that's because I reached out to Don Sickler, who controls Melba Liston's music. Yeah, and I was asking him about about that, which he sent, but then he said, you know, Jerry, before she passed, was very much interested in Sarah Cassie's work, and and I didn't know, he asked me if I knew who she was, and I didn't. He said, well, you know, check out this song, and he he might have sent me a couple songs, and uh, I went online and also heard, you know, this Windflower piece done by Herb Ellis and another version by Hank Jones, it was really nice.
3: Sarah Cassie is one of many composers whose music few people will know. In the book's table of contents, pieces are grouped into more than a dozen categories, ranging from blues, ballads, and bop types to the more esoteric Odd Times and Mixed Meters or South American Afro-Cuban Global. Being an educator, Carrington also intended the book to be used in the classroom so that students would learn the music as part of their curriculum. Of course, women
1: understand the need for this book. A lot of men understand the need for it, too, and have um, ordered it and, you know, wanting to do something around it. But there's been more women that have reached out saying they're playing the material. But there's also been, you know, a few uh, male band leaders you know, at schools, High schools in different places that have told me they've gotten the book and they're incorporating, you know, the music, you know, in their repertoire. So I think that's really important, and that's one of the goals of the book—to have band directors, middle school, high school, incorporate some of the material. And I tried to make sure that the levels were a pretty wide range. There's stuff in there that the high school band for sure could play. There, there are things that are very difficult as well.
3: As the book came together, Carrington envisioned a series of recordings to serve as musical companions. For the first album, she formed a quintet and invited special guests to participate. Eleven songs appeared on the CD, entitled New Standards Volume 1, and last month it won a Grammy.
4: I think about the life I live, a figure made of clay. I lost, the things I gave away And when
3: I'm in a certain mood I the holes and look one night As in the book, the composers on the disc range from well-known to unknown. Abby Lincoln's song Throw It Away" is sung by Melanie Charles.
1: Give your love, live your life, each
3: and every day. And keep your heart wide open, let the sun shine
4: through. Cause you can never lose a thing
3: if it belongs. Carla Blaze's ballad, Lawns, is given a new vocal treatment with lyrics by Carrington and vocals by Samara Joy. Oh,
5: Lord, we laugh, we
3: play. And the disc includes a version of Sarah Cassie's Windflower that introduces parts for trumpet and flute into the arrangement. Although the book and CD focus on music by female composers, the recording features both male and female instrumentalists and vocalists. That mix is by design, and it reflects an evolution in Carrington's thinking. She won her first Grammy in 2012 for her fifth album, The Mosaic Project, whose goal was to celebrate the artistry, musicality, and diversity of women. Carrington invited a star-studded group of female artists to perform the music, much of it written by them, and the cover art reinforced the theme by incorporating hundreds of headshots of women. Subsequently, Carrington teamed up with two of the group members, Jerry Allen and Esperanza Spaulding, to form the power trio ACS. A decade later, Carrington remains committed to breaking down gender barriers in jazz, but not necessarily to do it in an all-female setting. At the Berkeley Institute of Jazz and Gender Justice, people of all genders are invited to work together to achieve the Institute's goal of gender equity, both inside the college walls and in the music industry.
1: With gender equity, the goal is for everybody to be recognized in some, somewhat in equal terms and for us to all play together and for the music not to be dominated by men. And as long as you keep separating men and women and have just women jazz festivals or just women's groups of women playing together, it sort of helps to feed that separation. Now, There's nothing wrong with celebrating Women, you know, I have mixed feelings about Women's History Month and Black History Month for that reason because I imagine a future where we don't have to put a month aside to celebrate the accomplishments of African Americans or women. A future where those accomplishments are celebrated along with everybody else's all year round.
3: While gender equity may be a work in progress, Carrington seems optimistic that it is not too far off, whether in terms of music or in society itself.
1: I feel like it's possible in my lifetime to feel that kind of equity, and I I didn't feel that way before. I didn't think about it enough because I was just existing within how everything was structured. Most people that are trying to be an agent of change through their music are at least conscious of being an agent of change in other areas. Some people only focus on music and that's all, and their lives are very narrow. And we need those people too, you know. I'm not saying there's something wrong with that, but I do feel like things go hand in hand. Wayne Sorter told me that one day, and it changed my life, that music is but a drop in the ocean of life. And that for me meant don't focus just on music. You have to focus on these other areas of life so that your music is powerful and relevant.
5: Just like the earth revolves around the sun, our lives in circles never
1: to be done. I'm just thinking about the future. You know, I'm an optimist and I'm, I'm seeing change happen and uh you know it's exciting.
3: For the art section, I'm Leslie Karras.
4: Found
5: to see the sun.
0: Thanks to Leslie for that piece. You can find more info about the project at terrylyncarrington.com. This is the Arts Section, I'm Gary Zydek. A couple weeks ago, Hollywood celebrated its most talented at the 95th Academy Awards ceremony. Actors, directors, producers, special effects teams, makeup artists, costume designers were among those recognized with Oscars. One specific group of filmmaking professionals that wasn't celebrated, Stunt People. Even though stunt performers are an integral part of the filmmaking process, they've never been formally recognized by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. In recent years, there's been a growing chorus of people calling for the creation of some type of stunt Oscar. This year, the New York Magazine Entertainment website Vulture created their own awards to recognize excellence in stunt performance. I recently caught up with Chicago-based film critic and writer Nick Allen to talk about the important role Stunt performers play in the film industry. We also chatted about a piece he recently wrote for Vulture that highlights 18 great films directed by stunt performers. One thing that's been getting more attention in recent years, I think, has been the fact that there isn't a a stunt Oscar. And I'm going to guess that you would be one of the people that thinks that that stunts should be recognized by the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences?
6: Absolutely. Especially that they uh, make some effort to publicly use their platform to recognize amazing technical achievements, advancements. They should also be recognizing the craft that goes into stunt work because it is also essential to movies that you wouldn't even think had stunts in them. They do because someone, you know, needs to get hit by a car for a dramatic movie or like someone needs to drive you know, um, out of a garage for a certain, like, kind of a dangerous pullout. It's all these kind of things that are made possible because of stunt people that it's not recognized. So it's not even, oh, this is, like, a really cool thing that was done. It's that, but it's also just recognizing a true part of filmmaking, a and, and, and necessary aspect of filmmaking. Otherwise, we don't have the movies. We, and we don't have the movies that were Oscar nominated, you know.
0: What's your opinion as to why they've never created that category?
6: I I see it as two things. I see it as number one, it's related to this prestige for the first unit, which is about you know um, looking at film as there's like a director and there's a cinematographer, there's an editor, um, but it's not seeing the kind of nuance that there's so much more going on in second unit and other groups. Um, but also, I just think that they see stunts as is only spectacle, and they like to think that they're more than that. Um, These, like the academy, likes to think that they are more than just um, spectacle, and uh, they are a part of making stunts, having them be seen as reductive or, you know, reducing them in the public eye, like
0: that. So, one of the outlets that you write for, Vulture, created its yeah. own uh, recognition, the Stunt Awards this year, and so this is just meant to throw some. Uh, accolades onto the, the professionals working in stunts today?
6: Right, yeah. Uh, yeah, very... Uh, like they pulled different critics and, and other filmmakers, I think. and But just the idea of uh, creating an award for different kind of stunts throughout the year, um, for movies throughout the year, and also seeing how many different movies there are to talk about and praise in this way and to be in awe of because of the way that some people make the impossible or the impossible-looking seem possible. And then we go see it in a movie because it it seems impossible, that kind of thing.
0: Maybe the, the everyday viewer can't really appreciate it because uh, some of these stunt people make things look so effortless in combination with the directors and, and other people. But it's almost right. like people probably don't even realize what's actually taking place. And that's like a credit to the, the, the professionals working on these films.
6: Totally. And I think there's also something that there's not a ton of immediate credit either. It's so hard to find out, like, who does this, who does does, who's a stunt double of who. It's not like that's always there in the credit. I think that's part of it. There's, like, an anonymity, especially uh, if you go into—I and and I was working on, like, writing about stunt people. Like, there is, there's not, like, a, a concrete way of just finding a certain character. Oh, this is the person who definitely played it. Because it could be a bunch of people, you know, especially if it's, like, a Marvel movie— when they have somebody in a mask, that's a stunt person doing those hits, you know.
0: I should mention people can find uh, a list of the, the winners of the the stunt awards by going to vulture.com. You wrote a piece that, that goes along with uh, a whole package of, of stunt-centric features at, at Vulture, highlighting 18 great movies directed by stunt performers. And, and so I was curious, were you already aware of some of these uh, films and directors, or did it require some research?
6: Both. Uh, it certainly came... It came together because I've been thinking about how much I do believe the John Wick movies, as as a recent example, that they resonate so much with people because ultimately it is great filmmaking and how that doesn't need to be kind of assigned to a certain genre. Um, I think the John Wick filmmaking is as good as prestige filmmaking, so to speak, but the kind of the attention and uh, awe we put upon prestigious movies or more dramatic movies, um, there's still a, a, a great amount of craft in genre filmmaking, and in terms of the John Wick movies, and so I was just thinking about like the, the secret thought, or the special thought that goes into those movies, and that is because it's by a former stunt person, Chad Stohlhesky, and a lot of other movies. It turned out that offer great spectacle um, and not just um, action are uh, create uh, great spectacle because they are from people who have a long history of being a stunt person.
0: And after reading. Your piece, I mean, what occurred to me, which was, I guess, fairly obvious, but I never really thought about it, was who better to decide how certain things are filmed and captured on film than the people that are familiar with how stunts work.
6: Right. Uh, especially because they're more familiar with liabilities and, and so forth, or they're more familiar with like the mechanics of pulling off a dangerous stunt, because they will take take care of that on the set. It's not like the director is always involved you know, with a motorcycle chase or something like that. Um, and uh, they have a, kind of an intrinsic um, understanding of the stakes also about insurance, about making it safe, uh, about making things that look painful as safe as possible. I mean, that's, that's an amazing skill itself, but it's an intrinsic part of filmmaking. But it's, for some people, they, they have quite an experience of it that you don't get just as a director.
0: So I think some listeners might be surprised to learn Buster Keaton, silent movie legend, is on this list. So he was a a stunt person?
6: Yes, I mean, he was, he was, uh, I started the piece with that because he is a great example of, he does his own stunts, but he applies his own courage, you could say, and uh, artistic vision to the storytelling. And in the case of the general, he applies the, same manner of investment in a production um, and and fearlessness, essentially, as a as a son person to storytelling. So therefore, he has a movie with a locomotive, you know, that was shot in 1926 or so, that uh, would be reckless by today's standards. It would not be possible by today's standards, actually, but...
0: Well, it's kind of a uh, polarizing film that came out last year. It was Babylon, and it shed some light on those early years of the the filmmaking. Yeah, it kind of felt like a lot of things were like fly by the seat of your pants. They were just creating things on the on the fly on set.
6: Absolutely, and I and that well that was also kind of yeah how um, the stunt industry you know. Started to crystallize was like okay will you do this thing all right you're hired you know and at... Yakima Canutt one of the one of the original or like one of the kind of first renowned stunt people um, and famously did the the stunt in uh, Stagecoach hopping between carriage and a horse and so forth if I remember correctly um, but. He also became a uh, a director, you know, a second unit director and then a director, but within an industry that initially was dangerous was flying by the seat of their pants.
0: So we're going to highlight some of the other, we can't go through yeah. all, 18 people can, can find uh, the piece on vulture.com. So you write about Bruce Lee, but then there's this film from 1988 that I feel doesn't get uh, a lot of uh, attention, um, but I saw it when I was a... Uh, a kid because I think I was like a big Apollo Creed fan, uh, so Carl Weathers was got to like star in his own action film called Action Jackson. So yep. it doesn't get a lot of attention, but obviously you felt it uh, was worthy of being highlighted here.
6: I think um, it's a great example of uh, that someone like um, the director is Craig R. Baxley, and uh, he's a son coordinator for movies in the 70s. Just like somebody who's been in the business for a long, long time who then was given a shot to direct a movie, direct an action movie, and I can imagine they were like, well, hey, how do we, here's this character, Action Jackson, his name is Action Jackson, we don't know, like, if he's not from a comic book, he's not based on anything, we just kind of know that he earned his name somehow. So this movie is an example of like, well, you hire a stuntman to direct it to be the storyteller, and they will fill the movie with amazing stunts that make you go, oh, this is why the character is named Action Jackson. Uh, And, uh, actually had such a focus on cars in his career, so there are amazing car stunts in the movie, uh, including one that has, like, someone, uh, Action Jackson, driving a car, and then his son driver driving a car, like, up through a mansion, like, up the stairs and around the hallway and all that kind of stuff. Things that would take immense coordination and uh, knowledge, certainly, of how to do that. Or there's a a great action scene where he's, like, clinging to the, the top of a car as it's, like, spooping around Detroit, I believe,
0: mm-hmm.
6: um, and uh, amazing sequence, and just has like a, it has a great amount of real danger to it, but it certainly makes it has that stunt person touch.
0: And then you referenced the John Wick series and the, the latest installment, John Wick Four, uh, just came out uh, the other day. What did you think?
6: Well, I, I do think uh, it gives the people what they want and, and also what they didn't know they wanted to see. But I think uh, the this fourth John Wick movie is another great example of excellent, intentional filmmaking that action can be really confusing if it's done poorly. Or it can be really crisp and effective and visceral, not just because of a kill or something, but because of the impact that's created from a, a good shot to a good edit. Also, of course, through good choreography, um, there is uh, so much. Um, hand-to-hand combat in this movie with Keanu Reeves performing much of it, as directed by his former stunt double, Chad Stahelski. I mean, uh, some of the the mythological stuff is really kind of hazy to me. I, you know, there's <laughs> like you kind of tell when it's time to go to the bathroom. Um, but I I can't wait to see it again. But I also know that yeah, I might go get a popcorn or something in the middle of some of the the background stuff. And yet, uh, the movie is not kind of worn down by a lot of stuff that makes for bad action movies whether it's bad filmmaking or whether it's just kind of um, generic um, characters or something, it's, uh, it's, and, and also it it has incredible action sequences for sure. So I I won't kind of spoil the premises, but it's uh, amazing what they do. And again, would really only be possible by somebody who knows what it's like to get hit by a car. There's an amazing scene. You'll know what I'm talking about. That is just full of that, um, spectacle but it could only have been done by somebody who knows how to do a car hit and make it look painful but do it on a movie set and it's uh, it pays off Um, don't like violence but I do think John Wick movies are amazing you know fantasies you know in that way they really deliver
0: do you think uh, and this is kind of going back to what I was referencing earlier but as far as the film going public do you think some people miss interpret like to think that cgi just does everything these days
6: totally and i think um that is kind of where it gets a little bit hazier that's a great point because uh cgi can take over or they can uh help assist in a certain physical feat but i also do believe that people know when something is real and when it's not more or less we still kind of have that eye for what is fake just as much as we can still feel a good hit you know or a good physical action if it's delivered right with great filmmaking. So CGI is both uh, making assisting and making sort of the, the impossible more possible, but it still cannot be replaced. And I think Top Gun is a great example of that. And people really responded to Top Gun with the main selling point that like, oh, they're actually in the jets flying in, you yeah. know, yeah. that is not a mistake that that was like a leading selling point, And that's also not a mistake that the movie was so popular because it does satisfy the urge we have about the movies of just show me something real you can watch computer graphics at home that kind of thing
0: and probably the person that gets the most attention for stunts so many of the these stunt performers as you mentioned live in anonymity but uh tom cruise the biggest movie star in the world uh, obviously right. it's known that he does a lot of his own stunts so i think he brings a lot of attention there's a new mission impossible coming out this summer so i'm sure we'll be hearing about some crazy thing he did
6: and, yeah, they, they certainly have already started selling it. Um, if, if anybody's been to the theaters, I think, like, last month, they started showing, like, a 10-minute pre-roll about a stunt that he does. And that way of thinking is no different, really, uh, than Buster Keaton or Jackie Chan. Tom Cruise is basically trying to be Jackie Chan. Um, <laughs> where, if we're directing um, But realizing that the star power is in, like, what's the next thing that he will do and risking getting hurt. For it or dying, you know, risking a lot of a lot of pain and, and everything. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, but I, I wish Tom Cruise had directed the movie because I would love to see what kind of standards he has. But he doesn't strike me as someone who's going to do that anytime soon.
0: Nick, as always, thanks so much.
6: Thank you for having me.
0: That's film critic and writer Nick Allen. You can check out his piece on eighteen interesting films directed by stunt people and the Stunt Awards by visiting vulture.com. <laughs> And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you here on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening.